Welcome to Season 3 of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis with my co-host Ben Pronk. G'day Tim. Uh, ben, today we are going straight into the freezer, life in Antarctica, where we're going to speak to David Knopf, who's the station leader at Davis Station down on the ice. Yeah, and spend a bit of time there. He has. Um, we'll talk about that through the interview, but more, t- more time than he expected to spend. And before he went south, he also had a career in uniform, in defence, and then into foreign affairs, and decided that from there he would go and spend time in arguably one of the most remote and ho- inhospitable locations on the planet with a larger summer team and a small winter team. And in winter get about an hour of twilight in the middle of the day. And he'll talk about the programs, the flora, the fauna, leadership challenges, as well as how you get entry into the Australian Antarctic Division and become part of a station team. Yeah, I mean, we keep saying that how blessed we are to get to speak to these people leaving, leading lives less ordinary. And, and Dave's certainly one of these individuals that mm. has, you know, amazing career in... Um, uh, sort of uh, DFAT type roles, Department of Foreign Affairs, his military in Iraq, background. In Pakistan, yeah. Yeah, incredible. Yeah. You know, he didn't, and, and we'll talk to him about some of the, the posts. He certainly wasn't just on the cocktail circuit. He, he was uh, in some really interesting places and then decides to, to go well off the beaten track to um, uh, the, the Antarctic Division. So really incredible. I'm going to ask him about relationships. I'm really interested in, you know, have a breakup with a girlfriend that's bad enough but what happens if you are stuck there for years on end in a small community uh, with someone you've broken up with you're going to ask that question because you were charged for fraternization in the military and you want to know whether it's permitted under the antarctic division yeah discipline act can you drink and can you disclosure that's not a thing no it's not but we are going to find out some some pretty interesting stuff about life down uh below the <laughs> Sub-Antarctic. Sub-Antarctic. No, it's Antarctic. Sub-Antarctic is further north. Anyway, We're gonna let's, let's speak to an expert. <laughs> let's speak to an expert and let's get on with the show. G'day, fellas. Get G'day, mate. You've got your winter coat on. Oh, this is it. Oh, that's the thing down here. There's no bloody hairdressers, so it's getting thinner but longer, as I'm sure you can probably relate to. <laughs> um, yeah, but like, funnily enough, doing a man bun actually covers the bald spot a little bit better than uh, if I cut it short. But I, that'll be one of the first things I do is go and see a proper hairdresser when we get home. <laughs> hey, thanks for taking the time. No, anytime. Thanks for thanks for having me on. I've been listening to all the like the back catalogue of your podcast, so I'm absolutely honoured that you were, you wanted to talk to me. Jesus, you must uh, be bored down there if, if if you've buddy gone <laughs> trawled through the back catalogue. Yeah, yeah. Do you want me to start? I don't mind, Richard. Ladies and <laughs> you can't laugh over the start. This is amateur hour, mate. Sorry, we should have warned you. Right? Only a hundred episodes down with. <laughs> No, you, we, right. your studio looks a lot more professional than the other podcasts I've done, which is normally like some mate in his basement, like starting a podcast with about <laughs> ten listeners. So, right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Unforgiving Sixty. I'm Ben Pronk, and I'm Tim Curtis. You are, and we are joined um, from a, a very cold part of the world. We walked in today, thirty-four degrees in Perth today, Celsius. Yep, little little warm. Um, but uh, our guest this week, David Knopf, uh, from a, a much pol- uh, colder part of the world. What's the, the mercury doing outside today, David? G'day, uh, g'day, Ben and Tim. Thanks for having me on the program. Look, today, so I'm coming to you live from Davis Station, Antarctica. Uh, currently out the window, it's about zero degrees and 15 to 20 knots of wind. 
So that's actually a balmy summer's day. You, you could uh, walk around outside in a, in a T-shirt for those of us that have been here for the year. We are certainly interested in, um, in getting a whole bunch more information about the sort of acclimation process, both from the, the temperature and also the isolation. But it'd be awesome if we could start just with a, a little bit of your backstory and, and how you got to, to being in Davis Station. Yeah, so I'm the uh, station leader here, which uh, it took, uh, it was something that was on my professional radar for a number of years and took a while to get the right resume, the right contacts, and then the right availability and lining it all up to actually physically get down here into the, the station leader's office at Davis. Um, prior to this, I'm, I'm in my, my mid to late now 30s. Um, I had a little brief career in the ADF for a couple of years decided that was something that interested me but wasn't quite the career I wanted long term and then moved into to foreign affairs and trade, did numerous postings and, and a lot of work overseas in, the, in and around the Middle East and the conflict zones over there um, and then really decided I'd have had enough of the worst parts of, of sort of the world and, and humanity and was looking for something a bit more interesting and positive. Um, and that was where the, and my, the high commissioner to Pakistan at the time I was posted there, actually, uh, Peter Haywood, get out of Pete, put me onto the idea. He's like, oh, you, you should think about being a station leader down in Antarctica. And I, and then when I got back to Melbourne after, uh, I think my about five rotations through Iraq, um, I was well and truly sick of that and <laughs> put in my application. It took a year or so to jump through the hoops in the selection process. And then, uh, got a got a great phone call from uh, one of your mates, Rob Clifton, who was the operations manager at the AAD mm. one time and uh, uh, you know, until recently. And he uh, called me up and said, Dave, would you like to go down to Davis Station uh, for one year as the station leader? And I couldn't have said yes uh, quickly enough. <laughs> That's so, how I came to be here. So in summary, you'd seen the worst that, that humanity has to offer, decide I'm not really all about people i want to go somewhere <laughs> where, where i just have to deal with penguins yeah well funnily enough uh probably 99 percent of my job is dealing with people yep. uh as opposed to dealing with penguins <laughs> as you can imagine and, and some of the stuff here I'm, I'm sure you guys are keen to talk about is how we definitely you manage an isolated and small community so uh but having the opportunity to look at i can look at my window now and see a, a, a kind of gaggle of penguins just coming up on the beach. I think it's called a waddle of penguins actually, but uh, they're starting to return. It's about time for them to start molting. So they've just had their breeding season and the chicks are starting to, to waddle around a bit and they come and find little bits around station to hide and then they start molting their uh, coat before they'll head back out to sea once the season changes. So that is probably the best part. It's pretty epic. So before we leave first career, because the other thing that changed was the thermometer from 40 plus degrees in Pakistan and Iraq and places like that to your zero degrees today. But in terms of change, how did you find that transition out of uh, government sector, defence and foreign affairs? And what lessons did you take from them that have been able to be applied in the very remote location of um, Antarctica? Yeah, no, great question. I, I like to, to say that in a lot of ways, I try and try to take the best parts out of those two careers to blend that into this one. Um, certainly like the, the, the army and the ADF, it does some things really well and it does a lot of things uh, you know, medi to a mediocre standard, it does others poorly, but you really got to try and focus on what it does well and take that out. And one of the things for me, hands down the ADF uh, and RMC and everything does better than anyone is, is training you in planning and preparation for, you know, going, going to the ends of the earth to really run down the rabbit hole of right, what could go wrong, what could happen here, what could happen there and being ready for anything. And I took that out of the ADF um, and, and into foreign affairs as well. And into those conflict zones where you're constantly working with change, you know, it's, there might be a plan, but every day, every minute, every hour, every month, every year, the plan needs to change and adapt. And that was something I, I took with me. And that, that was what attracted me to those postings as well. I've I found a lot of people who go, oh, you, you know, work with foreign affairs and trade, you know, oh, you know, champagne and caviar and, and on the Champs-Élysées or something like that. And you go, look, yeah, posting to Paris would be nice, but we kind of get along with the French. Um, <laughs> I found it fascinating to go on on postings to countries where you don't necessarily get along with the host government or, or the host government um, 
you know, it can often be quite duplicitous or, or have you know, multiple agendas mm. and multiple other factors. And that was just absolutely fascinating as a, as a junior diplomat to sink my teeth into. But I think then coming into this role with the Antarctic program where you've got a, a whole range of different backgrounds in the team that you that I, I run here um, and, and in the broader sense, the whole Antarctic program, having to draw on different experiences from either time in uniform or, or time afterwards to handle very different situations, different groups of people, different individuals, different vibes is the important thing to, ha- to just keep adapting. Mm. Now, you glossed over entering Antarctic Division and we do want to get to life in the freezer soon, but it's not as simple as applying, getting accepted and, and appearing down on the Antarctic continent. Can you talk through the selection process for a station leader? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing you need to do is go to jobs.antarctica.gov.au and we're currently <laughs> recruiting for the 2021-22 um, summer, summer season mm-hmm. and then into the 2022 winter program. So I think applications close in a couple of days. So this might go to air after that, but either way. Check our show um, notes. Get the, your appli- the link will be in yep. the show notes. <laughs> There you go. Um, so head to the website and you can read all about all the different job descriptions for station leaders and for all the other um, skill sets we have on station. After that, you, you'll have a range of interviews as you would for any job. Um, and then they'll get you down to either to Tasmania or, or other places around Australia. And I'm just, I know that uh, COVID has changed a few of these elements, mm-hmm. but one of the things we really try and make sure is that you can work together as a community member and not just on your technical skills. So really what we need are people that, yes, you've got the technical skills to be a a plumber or a sparky or a scientist or a doctor or a chef or whatever it it is. And we have a whole range of different jobs down here, but you understand how as an isolated community that needs to work together rather than you just be worried about, oh, I've got my nine to five and then I go home. Mm. Um, Living in an Antarctica, it's the same people and it's the same, home is 50 meters away from my office um, as other people that I'll socialize with, but also work with. And it's the process that the, the div goes through to make sure we find the right people is uh, it's, it's not quick and it shouldn't be, it's very thorough and it does a great job of finding the right people for the job. And it's quite interesting. I think if you're interested in, in you know, getting a sense of uh, the way it recruits as you're going through, it'll help you understand what the div is looking for. Just to give some context for our listeners, what sort of numbers are we talking about? You're down there alone and unafraid. How many people? So last summer, which was more of a typical summer at Davis, we had nearly 100 people at any one time on station. I think total numbers rotating through was around 130 or so. Uh, and that's that's administered through, we've got you know, shipping um, intercontinental aviation into Casey Station, then intracontinental domestic flights across from the stations there. You can you know, have a number of people there, but then we dropped down to a winter team of just 24. Mm. Um, the three continental stations and the sub-Antarctic station at Macquarie Island, they're all around you know, high teens to low 20s for the winter team. And then you know, Davis and Casey having around the hundred odd expeditioners for summer. So not huge numbers, but um, certainly enough. And you think of the scale of what, like during summer when we had um, two squirrel B3 helicopters mm. and, a, and a twin auto aircraft here. So we're running a small airfield and in a day, daily aviation, you've got watercraft out. We had a naval hydrography team that were mm. out doing um, some underwater survey work daily. So you've got two or three boats on the water, two helicopters in the air, you've got a twin auto. We've had a, a DC-3 Basler aircraft that was flying in and out and around with a team that was out doing inspections to different stations across Antarctica. And that's just the operations side. The other side of it is, is the, the trades and infrastructure mm. side. So you've got a whole small town worth of, of infrastructure and generators and water tanks and re- reverse osmosis plants to generate, to build, to create water, um, day-to-day maintenance. You've got a, a full industrial kitchen with three summer chefs. So you've got so much going on. And in a lot of ways, it's actually quite understaffed to yep. achieve all those things that if it was back home, you'd probably have double that. From a leadership perspective, one of the things I've always been fascinated by, and and if I'm honest, probably grappled with, is that line between sort of familiarity and and distance. And, you know, there's those wonderful philosophical discussions about leadership versus like a ship. And, you know, do you compromise yourself by getting too close? But 
generally, this is all set against a context where you can go home. You know, even in military environments, you you can sort of detach yourself um, from the the people you're leading. Um, you are clearly in a very different position where you know you you're living with these folk, like you said, they're kind of your family, your village mates, and also your your team that you need to, to lead. Can you talk about some of the challenges of that environment from a leadership perspective? Yeah, and, and that's, that I reckon fundamentally, that is the hardest part about being a station leader. Um, I mean, you've you both got military backgrounds and, and most of your listeners probably have a, some understanding of it, that there is no officer's mess. Um, you can't, I certainly cannot go and... Uh, Know, debrief with with my peers. I've got an amazing deputy station leader. She's actually the the chef and does a, a, an incredible job backing me up and you know reporting for the community in somewhere between an RSM and a sergeant sort of role mm. for the the community. But at the same time, I, like a lot of decisions, I'm kind of on my own as the face of it. And that you know we've we've had a a very long uh, year here. We and due to COVID, mm. our wintering team was actually extended an extra four months and. That was pretty tough being the station leader of a team that just got compulsorily extended mm. um, and a lot of questions and um, you know, feelings from yeah. the team got directed at me at that time. And, you know, that's one of those moments where you go, right, this is what I'm, you know, this is part of the job to carry this and, push through it but it, geez that was tough and and what i wanted to do and, and what you know any other aussie would do is at that time i'd i'd go cool all right, i'm gonna get to the gym and and try and take out some frustration on the the bag and, and do that and then you see people in the gym who've just been asking you questions and they they might interrupt you or you could just feel that they want to ask you about that again and and then you go oh, i'll go crack a beer at the bar and you sit at the bar and get grilled <laughs> on or oh, why didn't they do this why hasn't this happened it is very hard to operate yourself and escape um, and it's really a 24 hour, 365 day job. Um, and if I look at my spreadsheet now, it's actually, is it day 451, uh, mm. for us from when we left Australia. So it's not an easy job, but all of the things you want in a leadership challenge and personal challenge, mm. uh, it can deliver in droves when you get a situation like that. Understanding you're going to do over 500 days down there, David. Yeah, so our so we left Australia on the 25th of October 2019. So we have, I guess, the big win is successfully dodged 2020, mm. which uh, <laughs> historically is actually probably a, like a massive win for our crew. Uh, but yeah, it, it theoretically, if the whole thing goes to plan, we will get home just before Easter, which will be in excess of 500 days outside of Australia for. Uh, the team here, which is no mean feat. So let's talk a bit about 2020 yeah. and what you have dodged. I've mentioned on the show before, I love a book called World War Z. It's a book by Max Brooks and was, was made into a movie, which is very different. But there's one vignette in that. Um, it's about a zombie apocalypse and there's an astronaut who's on a space station sort of watching this unfold and getting the remote news of all of this happening. But but this guy's remote, uh, you know, distant and, and not personally affected. It, was it a bit like that, sort of seeing the, the world just do weird stuff um, from, a, from afar? Absolutely. I mean, and we still haven't been home yet. So I know you guys are going to come from Western Australia. And, you know, at times we'd be watching, um, we'd be, you know, watching TV or, or listening to friends and family back home. And for us, it didn't make any sense. Um, you know, you could be, you know, guys with friends and family in Perth or Queensland were like, oh, it seems all right. But then <laughs> my, most of my were from, from Melbourne and my family back home, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll explain this later to them, but they, essentially they were going bonkers, you know, they're <laughs> sending messages and videos. They didn't know what to do themselves. And, and that became um, quite a unique situation. A lot of people turned to the Antarctic program and, and the stations and said, oh, what do you do when you're, you're stuck indoors for, for months during winter? And we, we put out a video uh, way back in sort of March or April, something like that. With, we did some sort of hilarious stuff around station and it went, it's quite popular on, on Facebook and other things of us going around the station and explaining how we, we deal with the isolation. And it was a big hit and it, it with, with still not knowing what we're coming home to. And we always had this hope that 
oh, you know, the longer we're here, the more likely it'll be back to normal. <laughs> and and the, the more it went on, the more you're like, oh, geez, you know, um, it just keeps keeps going and keeps changing. And then, you know, living, uh, I live right next to the Grand Prix track and I was uh, kind of annoyed that I was going to be on the boat during the Melbourne Grand Prix. And then they announced, oh, I'm actually going to bump it to November. And I think I was the only person that probably jumped for joy and said, oh, it's great. I can, <laughs> and the only best thing about living next door to the Grand Prix track is you can walk across the road when the race is on, but only if you're home. And there, anyway. there are other social gatherings that you can have with researchers from other nations, but they were put on hold. Is that right? Yeah, correct. So they've um, ordinarily, so last summer I was, I was lucky enough to be able to fly down to some of the neighbouring stations. Uh, there's an Indian, Chinese and Russian, um, or three separate stations, about oh, 45 minutes flight away from, I think it's 60 nautical miles away. Um, ordinarily, yeah, you'd go down there and they came and visited us for a day. We had a couple of different Chinese visits and an Indian team. And then we had a, an unsanctioned visit from one team as well with the pilots. Uh, they had a day here enjoying our Wi-Fi, and then they uh, decided to come back another day unannounced. Which was, <laughs> Maslow's hierarchy uh, of needs. Yeah, that was. Well, it took about you know quite interesting. Anyway, great day. Um, and a lot of that stuff's been put on hold. So ordinarily, we'd have a lot more aviation during the summer. We'd, we'd have had a lot more people on station, but COVID had a huge impact on that. It extended our stay and reduced the tempo and the amount of work that the stations could get done. Um, there was a, some other benefits to us that, you know, ordinarily, um, I think the best example was you know, last summer we had a team of uh, benthic ecologists who were doing underwater science and, you know, they had a, a really advanced um, remote operated vehicle, submersible, that they'd, they'd drill holes through the ice, drop it through, send it down, have about four GoPros on it and hmm. took some amazing footage and did some great research for, for them in terms of what's down there. And underneath the sea ice and the ocean floor of Antarctica is spectacular. There's all sorts of wildlife and plants and things you, you wouldn't expect that can live down there because the, the rocky you know, shores are quite uh, barren. Anyway, so these guys had this great ROV. And then this year they were like, oh, well, we, we don't have those guys there this year. Um, what can you do? And, and me and the, the plant operator, we ended up, you know, basically duct taping my GoPro to a you know, eight foot bamboo pole and sticking it through the ice. <laughs> and, uh, well, That's science. And, then, you know, and, that, and that was, it, look, it wasn't as good as what they were able to do with the thing, but that was what we had to come up with because that's what they had this year. And that, I think that's what attracts a lot of people to the program is you often end up in these situations where you'd go, Oh, you know, be, what we need is this particular part or widget or, or expertise and we, we don't have it. I mean, there's one of the, one of the poor sparkies is up there rebuilding uh, essentially like, a, I don't even know the technical details. I'll probably get it wrong, but the essence of it is that a circuit board fried itself and they need a software rewrite and a whole lot of stuff that we just don't have and trying to get that, you know, you, we, we, the last time we had a ship here was back in you know, February. So like last year. So he's having a kind of, deconstruct a lot of the circuitry to then take it back to analog to then work in with what he can get and having to rewire that. And he's been up there for, for weeks and then on the phone to, to Sweden and God knows where of the guys that built these microchips and another guy's camera broke down and all Sony kept telling him, he was like, Oh, just bring it into the shop or send it back. He's like, no, I can't do that. I need you to tell me how I can like reprogram the camera to not do this thing. And, and he ended up, 3d printing like anywhere you go 3d printing and you end up 3d printing some little thing to kind of hold the shutter open that then trick the camera to thinking it would work and they're the little things that i think really attract people to the program is having to think do what you can with what got um yeah i, I was going to ask no no it was awesome tangent because I, I was actually going to ask that you know that that kind of ingenuity and you know i'm showing my age with my reference to macgyver and the a team or or even the apollo 13 sort of mission but Paper clip and duct tape exactly you've, you've got to make it happen there, there's no excuse yeah absolutely and and that's you know some of the um some of the trades guys and the engineers and and really every expedition that we get down here is in a lot of ways multi-skilled and you you know, you might be great at one job, but it is it's super handy if you've got a lot of other skills. And I've found there's, there's a lot we can learn from each other. And that's been one of the highlights of my season and others around here as well is, is you know, we run like um, 
on different evenings and different weekends, depending on what it is, like sort of community college classes. Hmm. Um, we've done everything from, from baking in the kitchen, which is some obvious one. We've done some electronics and programming courses. Um, I did some, some stuff on some you know, leadership and planning for people. And you, you learn from each other and there's such a depth of skills within the people attracted to the Antarctic program that makes it what it is rather than just, oh yeah, we're here to do those particular mm. jobs they'll have you know we've got incredible musicians as well some of the the bands and the, the musical nights we've been able to to have have been great as well david can you talk to us about the living and working conditions at davis i mean what's there how do you live what's a normal day look like mm. and then i think we probably you know break break and talk about catering without resupply <laughs> Yeah, well, I know the great question. So, interestingly enough, uh, there's there's no standard day, but uh, today I'm on what we call slushy, which is the the kitchen hand for the day. Um, and on Mondays it's the chef's days off day off. So I was uh, in charge of cooking the sausage rolls and the soup and cleaning up all the pots and pans and often cleaning up the the, the bathroom and everything and the bar and stuff after a weekend. Uh, it's it's not too bad. But uh, so there's one person a day has to help the chef and, and help clean up the main living area. The accommodation's really quite good. It's a lot better than people think. They, they say, oh, Antarctica, you're like, they have, it conjures up images of, you know, Scott and Shackleton mm. in like a hut with, you know, mm. howling blizzards and stuff. You know, I'm, in a, I'm in a very nice office with a great view, uh, great internet connection and all sorts of things. And, that, and that's pretty standard uh, across the Australian stations. Now you've got, cinemas and a pool table and a, and a pretty well-equipped gym. It gets a bit crowded once you've got about two people in there, but <laughs> it is relatively well-equipped. Um, and you've got an ability to get out and about when the weather's good enough to go hiking around and enjoy it. And the, there is some, you know, some aging infrastructure down here and, and it's, it takes a long time to upgrade that. There's certainly plans to upgrade Davis and Macquarie Island and the other stations gradually as well. You have to keep doing it. And it, it's, it's a real balance between when they decide, okay, we're going to have to do this, but it's going to come at the expense of you know, another program on station to, to get that infrastructure done. But the facilities are great. And yeah, if you want to talk about how, and, the, and then I'd rotate all the, the stock, it is absolutely incredible that what we've still got uh, after a year down here. You spoke before about people's perceptions and having these sort of images that are not necessarily accurate to life. Um, we certainly get that in the, the military side of things. I think people have an image of what you know combat's like or Afghanistan's like or whatever. But every now and then you'll, you'll read a book or see a scene in a movie that really resonates. Is there anything, would you direct someone to a book or a movie that, that really captures the, the sort of experience of living in Antarctica? Oh, that's a... That's a good question because I, I get that as well with my other careers that people go, oh, geez, that must yeah, be. Yeah, yeah. I think the, the biggest problem here that, that we have is that everyone sees our images and, and video footage of you know, penguins and helicopters and planes and glaciers and icebergs and seals. And, and, and that stuff is phenomenal. Any day of the week where you're, you're having a bad day or you're grumpy, like going for a walk and watching a bunch of penguins fall over on the ice will <laughs> put a smile on your face. And, um, or having to stop, you know, there's, um, the seals kind of live in an area very close to station. They come up and they roll around and get rid of their, um, their, their pelt and then they, they go out to see when it regrows or whatever. And, you know, we had to stop resupply last thing. There's a big giant elephant seal just parked himself in the middle of the road. And the, you know, the, the loader with a you know, container on it's just sitting there waiting for the seal to move. <laughs> um, that, that part of it's just great. But what isn't shown is obviously all the other days where mm. you're doing, you know, not the same thing, but you're going to work, you're yeah. dragging yourself out of bed and seeing the same people at breakfast, getting asked questions before you even made your toast about oh, why isn't this happening? What's happening with that? And you're like, my, my bread, my toast is still bread. <laughs> and you ask me that question. Like, can you just wait, um, wait a little bit or, you know, what's happening there? Why can't I do that? Why is this happening? And that happened and that's natural. And, and those days, you could take a photo of those days, but they don't make sense. Mm. And I think from you guys as well, you'd, you'd know that from everyone sees, you know, flying around in Blackhawks and, and all sorts of exciting stuff that happens in the army that they don't, 
you know, show you the, the, the line after a long exercise or whatever, waiting to get your weapons back into the queue store and the yeah, queue yeah. is turning you away because it's just still, you know, dust on it or something. So, <laughs> yeah. I've forgotten that. There's, there's that side of, of yeah, there's, <laughs> there's that side that of this bad. life as well. But, yeah. <laughs> you, you mentioned that it was a balmy zero degrees today. How bad does the weather get and how does that affect programs? Yeah, so I think the, the worst we got here at Davis, which is known for its good weather, was uh, you know, in the middle of winter, you've got it's pitch dark for most of the day. You get a very slim twilight at about midday for an hour or something, and then it's dark again. Um, we hit sort of 80 knot winds, which is well over, I think it's a category two or three cyclone um, if it was back home, and you've got howling snow. Um, minus 25 or 30 ambient and then you know dropping that down with some significant wind chill uh, below that so essentially outside for any amount of time with exposed skin you're going to be having almost instantaneous frostbite um, but you there's ways to manage that so once it gets to certain wind parameters and, and temperature you know ranges and stuff you have to walk in pairs We've got rope systems that we set up around the station. So you, you walk along holding onto a rope, you radio ahead or phone call ahead um, before and after each building. You drop down to essential works only so you're not outside doing much more than you have to do. Um, and you, you're careful about who walks around. Interestingly enough, there's a bit of a, a rule of thumb that you know one kilo of weight per knot of wind will be about your... Your, your balance of falling over mm. and uh as someone that's had a few too many sausage rolls this year that 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 does be uh does be pretty well to be able to walk around in almost any winds that they throw at me here. but some of the, the smaller individuals uh get blown over and it's it's pretty funny and actually listening to um your your previous podcast with wayne jones uh obviously the, the, the ceo of indoor skydive australia where i fly um i find like walk around in, in severe winds you actually have to like kind of fly your body to walk <laughs> into the wind and you can practice some of your uh indoor skydiving skills you, you're standing work. up walking into the wind that's yeah. excellent meteorologist down there on the team correct yeah we have so we have one uh we actually have two qualified meteorologists employed in slightly different roles and then we have two met observers and one met technician slash observer so there's quite a good team of uh of uh, um who are doing an incredible job as well and what other programs that that you're running down in davis can you give us a snapshot of the kind of thing that's going on at the station yeah, so in terms of the, the actual science programs, there's ongoing um, seabird work, obviously with, with the mm -hmm. penguins and everything as well, and, and monitoring a lot of those. We we way we monitor those is with uh, nest cameras and time lapse cameras at a, at a whole range of different rookeries and sites around Davis. And I'm, by around Davis, I mean nearly some of them are a helicopter flight away, others you know, 20 or 30 k's away from station, and you have to go and collect the cards. Um, do the maintenance and mm. uh, change the change the batteries, repair broken shutters, pick, pick them up if they've fallen over, clean the solar panels, all these sorts of things at these remote sites. Um, we do a, a, a range of then just general uh, monitoring of the seal populations as well, the seal mm -hmm. survey. So you'll be out and about, and often it's a two, three day trip to cover all the terrain um, throughout the fjords and the, the uh, iced areas of sea ice around station and count the seals. You, out you go, you're looking for you know, different populations. You get to see baby seals and you know, occasionally dead baby seals and, mm -hmm. and you know, nature taking its course there with the, the different other wildlife, eating other wildlife. Um, we also got some you know, less exciting but equally fascinating stuff for those into it, you know, collecting moss samples and lake bed samples at different times of the year to, to assess the impacts of climate and environment and what's changing down here. And often the, often the science down here isn't fascinating in it, you know, in its immediacy, mm. but when you 
come back and you chat to some of the scientists that have been coming down here for 20 or 30 years, even longer, um, about how it's changed and yeah. what they've seen and what's, what's different each and every year. That's really fascinating. There's this one um, set of samples that we do at deep, a place called Deep Lake. That's I think one of the um, saltiest uh, lakes on earth because they're sitting in an old dried fjord area. And they're for the first time, I think it's the highest level it's ever been, but it's this, uh, it doesn't freeze in the depths of the Antarctic winter. It's still, it's that hypersaline that, um, It'll, it'll remain unfrozen and you, you, you know, you dip your finger and take a taste of it and it, it you know, tastes like salt. So uh, I can vouch for its, its salinity. But the science, uh, the, Please the tell me you, you get more here, technical yeah. than that in terms of measuring the salinity. Oh, our, our like you know, chief scientist for that stuff, he is uh, he's next level brilliant with something. You know, this guy that used to design rockets and you know, he'd, yeah. he'd walk straight into a job with SpaceX and you know, he's down here doing some of this stuff, which is pretty funny, but he's absolute, uh, absolute star as well. You, you touched on a point I'm really interested in. There's been a, a couple, I think, of documentaries on Netflix and that about climate change impacting the Arctic um, and just the rapidity of change and the impacts on things like polar bear populations and some of the really scary forecasts. Um, are you seeing, or are the olds and bolds who have been here for those sort of 20-year periods, are they seeing an acceleration of climate change in the Antarctic? Yeah, it, it's such a tough question to answer mm. um, because you know, I've only I've been to Antarctica for a couple of different seasons that are across the peninsula and then uh, here for this winter and stuff as well. And it is hard in that to see, oh, is that climate change? Is that climate change? Yeah. There's different ice conditions and everything every year. When you look at some of the data over 100 years or you look at the, the satellite imagery and everything, you go, well, you know, obviously there's less, you know, certainly in the north. Um, but there's a kind of inverse relationship here that if, as the and I am not a glaciologist, so I could be completely wrong on this. So please ask uh, ask one of the, the qualified scientists on that one. But as some of the ice shelves and the, the Antarctic plateau, you know, are potentially speeding up in their melting, it actually creates a colder ocean environment around the Antarctic continent, and you get this inverse increase in the sea ice extent during the winter. So hmm. in some areas. Yes, it's obvious. You're like, oh, this is open water, and then you know, for the last hundred years, that's been Packing. frozen and uh, you know, solid ice. But oh, all of a sudden, this other area actually has you know, a lot, you know, stronger and thicker and, and bigger sea ice that's not breaking out and it's never open water. But is that because um, you know the continent's melting faster and cooling the water, mm -hmm. and we won't know for another thousand years mm -hmm. uh, or so exactly? And they can look back and go, oh yeah, we should have done something back in uh, 2021. I think that's the the kind of the difficulty around trying to prove climate change uh, is that we won't know for, for years and it'll be too late. Mm. Now, unrelated to climate change, Antarctica is our driest continent and I think it's got about 90% of our fresh water but nothing to drink. Can you talk about the challenges of water at the station? Yeah, so Davis has uh, a really, you know, so we're about 30 k's from the Antarctic Plateau on a, a rocky outcrop called the Vestfold Hills. And strangely enough, Philip Law, when he reconnoitred uh, this site, sort of wrote down in his logs that, well, great place for a station. It's got uh, ready access to a deep sea anchorage for resupply, but water will be a problem. And it still is. Now we've got a reverse osmosis plant that we run to desalinate um, salt water and, and turn it into drinking water and everything. But that costs a lot of diesel fuel to do that. And then there's some unique parameters around when we can refill the, the reservoir or tarn uh, with that sea ice. So we have to do uh, with seawater, we have to do that in October. Um, you know, it was minus 10, 15 degrees, 20, 30 knots of wind, and you're out there rugged up running 800 metres of hose uh, from the ocean up across about an 80 metre rise uh, into the tarn. And, you know, there were some long days from, mm -hmm. from you know, 6am in the morning to 9, 9 or 10 o'clock at night running in shifts to, to get that done over a few weeks. And, you know, there was, there was some emotions and it was, it was, uh, but in a lot of ways that was real Antarctic work. That's what you wanted. And that's how we had to set up our water security for the next few years. There, there is um, an advanced wastewater treatment plant here at Davis in the final stages of, of being commissioned and operationalized that will give us some um, recovery of water, but it won't be absolute. So you'll be able, we'll be able to have, um, yeah, recycled water mm. uh, for, 
some elements, um, but there's obviously some risks associated with that as well. You got to make sure you do it properly because if we get that wrong, yeah, um, having yeah, spreading, the, yeah. The, yeah, to the whole community would, would be disastrous. So, got to be very balanced with the the speed of of embracing some of those uh, options. So, David, I do my best thinking in the shower. Is that going to be an issue if I went to Davis? It is. You've got to be limited to one minute per day, perhaps. Um, some people save their showers up. And then there's the other thing you don't know. You might see someone go in for a five-minute shower and you're like, what's he doing in there? And you, you could be, you know, well, he might have not showered for five days, which for some people, you know, you might say, hey, you might be saving a shower, but I think you uh, probably need one. Yeah, the, the, rec, the rec room's not big enough. Yeah, absolutely. Dave, I'm pretty interested in, you know, we spoke about the leadership challenges on such an intimate sort of uh, community. Um, I mean, relationships must form and they must bust up in that same community. Can you can you talk to me, obviously anonymised, but about some of the, the sort of happy stories of relationships forming on the ice and maybe some of the challenges of relationships deteriorating when you're, you're still in each other's pocket for another 400 days? Oh, for sure. Um, so we actually, we have a married couple on station, which is great. So they, they came down here for the summer as a, as a couple and one of them was going to winter and then, um, you know, unfortunately the situation or circumstances changed and then the partner was able to stay on for winter. So there's a married couple. They've got a, a um, there's a couple of shared rooms that people can elect to have. And so they've got a shared room and, and they, they work quite separately, which I think probably Oops. helps a bit. Um, and then, yeah, and they've been, been great. And then, you know, there's it's certainly like a lot of good uh, public service departments within the Antarctic Division and program more broadly. There's plenty of people that met uh, when they were down here and whether or not. And there's no, about the only rule is that uh, the ban from fraternisation is the station station leader. So uh, everyone else is is free to act like adults and maturely. So they, and you know, they, they do. And I think it's a, it's an interesting part of it. It's, it's really just a small, small town community. So you have to be careful if you, if you, you know, mess around and, and others find out about it or know about it, they will know. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, it's... And speaking of acting like adults, the, whenever you talk about drinking to anyone from a military background, they're automatically wondering what the limits are and, and what, what's the, the prevention of, of people having massive benders. How, how is that managed? Yeah, so it's, 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 I reckon that was one as well, coming from a, a military background even years ago, um, straight away seeing that, you go, oh, what the... Well, you wouldn't, you just, the, the, the memories of, of getting calls from, you know, cops or something goes, oh, someone's done this down the mad cow or whatever. And you're like, oh yeah, cool. Um, it's going to be interesting as a, as a platoon commander to handle that sort of stuff. I'm sure you guys would have been there before as well. So you, those memories come back, but the way it works here is, so I hold the keys to what's um, the year supply worth of alcohol is, is put in there. Each individual buys their own stuff. Um, which is, you know, there's a certain allocation that I control or the div controls and I sort of monitor it. What's probably more exciting is um, the home brew setup. So we have Australia's most southerly brewery, uh, the Vestfold brew, Brewery, and then, you know, once a fortnight we'll, we'll head down there and using the, uh, put some home there and look, sometimes we get it right, other times <laughs> we, we don't. Uh, and it's been, we had, oh, for Oktoberfest, we had a, a great brew off, um, one of the guys, so the guy that you know, went on to win, it did an amazing job, and it, he, you know, he'd put it in all these different rooms that had different ambient temperatures, and you know, you'd, you'd go into the laundry. There's like a, a drying room, and you know, his, his 23 litre keg was in there. And you're like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, it's just the temperature is not right there, and I'll put the beer up there to bubble away and get all this right. And he was in there like, um, you know, boiling the hops and stuff in the kitchen for days, and but geez, he put a put an absolute. Um, absolutely brilliant beer down and uh and one hands down i came about fourth in that one <laughs> and i'm sure everything was consumed just to make sure that the rankings were correct yeah oh yeah absolutely and then we, yeah, the chef did uh, it, was, it was a whole Oktoberfest thing she did uh pretzels and mustard and sausages and everything that was, that was a really good good german day for <laughs> no one being german on station
Now, safety is a very important part of uh, life at the station there. But what about when things don't go right? What is the redundancy and how do you conduct incident management over critical events? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that's something that the, the AAD, more than any other department in the Australian government, even um, even conventional military units don't deal with crisis and emergencies as often as the AAD does. And now they're not always life-threatening and crazy and catastrophic, but every sort of one or two or three or four years uh, throughout the AAD's history, and this goes back to you know, the history of Antarctic exploration, it just doesn't go to plan. And in recent history here, we had the Aurora Australis, our recently retired icebreaker, uh, break a mooring line in a blizzard at Mawson and run aground, and they had to you know, abandon ship in some really um, you know, dire circumstances and get that ship back to, to Fremantle for repairs and then call in for a Japanese ship. I think it came to the rescue and we had to move people around. All of a sudden you've got Mawson Station designed for about 50, 60 people. Just, oh, cool. Here's all these other people as well. You've now got to find room for them and flights and, and ships to get mm. them all out of there. Um, we've had, you know, the, the Antarctic program and, and Australia's as well as others are no stranger to, you know, more significant injuries and, and accidents as well. Um, and you can, you do everything you can to avoid them. But the important thing is always uh, rehearsals and, and planning and understanding, okay, what are our options? What are our capabilities at, at particular times? And, and here at Davis and in the other stations, you, you're always susceptible to sea ice conditions, weather conditions, runway accessibility, um, what assets are in the region, you know, when have you got ships in play, when are there ve uh, vehicle access to certain areas and having that in the back of your mind that myself as the station leader and then there's um, our search and rescue team leader or field training officer, it's his responsibility as well and it's everyone's responsibility to understand it. Having gone through those contingents here, what if that, what if that, what if that, what will we do mm. here, what can we do there? So that if when something happens, you, you've you mentally prepared for it and you go, okay, cool, yep, no, we're in that situation, we've got that, we can execute the plan or we're going to change this one element of a plan we've already come up with um, and roll from there. And, you know, as part of the incoming team, we, we you know, rehearse that stuff on on you know, almost day one of taking over is, okay, what would happen if there was a, you know, uh, incident on, on day one that requires changing the station from business as usual to an incident footing? And the div does that incredibly well. Dave, we're fascinated by the concept of resilience at, a, at an individual and an organisational level, and we've been t talking with some amazing people about it. Um, you've just mentioned one technique that sort of thorough preparation and planning, you know, contingency planning uh, as a sort of organisational way of, of developing more um, resilient sort of team. What about you yourself at a personal level? Um, what does resilience mean to you in the, this very unique environment that you're operating in? Yeah, that's no, it's a good question and, and it, it gets thrown around a lot these days. I've found the one thing that, that gets me through the, the toughest of situations, you know, both here in Antarctica and, and back home has always been trying to find the learning outcomes and the improvements from whatever happened, be it good or bad. And it often means you're quite harsh on yourself of, oh, I could have done that better. And you're like, no, that was, that went fine. Um, draw, like really getting together afterwards with, with a debrief or, or finding what you could do better um, helps with that. And mm. I've kind of moved it towards this sort of, and then when you, when you make mistakes as well, owning them, explaining them and then learning from them. And that's mm. at an individual level and, and group levels as well will help you as an individual. And then as a group build that resilience of like, yeah, we didn't get that right, but let's get it better next time or, or set it up so that the next people that are in that situation um, can do it better. And, and having that, you know, retrospective you know, analysis and mm. understanding of, of what you could have done uh, really helps. And yeah. 100%. And, and this is something that we, certainly the military background, you do the debriefs and, and that's great at a team level. But even at a personal level, if you're able to look back at something that you may have stuffed up and rather than kicking yourself about it, turn it into that positive learning, you know, this whole growth mindset thing, but be able to extract a lesson without you know, focusing on the negative and beating yourself up. Yeah, I reckon that's a, a 
fantastic technique. Yeah, one of, one of the best ones I ever learned actually came from doing um, big way like formation skydiving. Someone it was it, rather like you guys have done, you would have done this as well. And you, you, you're there and you've got to get, you know, oh, I'm, oh, I've got to join here and do that. And you've got 20 other people in the sky and you, but your job is, is focused on like, oh, I've got to hit this slot at this time and join that formation. And afterwards when it doesn't work and, you know, it was absolute shambles and everyone's going everywhere and you've got nowhere near the, the right formation and you watch the video and you're just sitting there going, God, I hope it wasn't me. Like I didn't go low. I didn't stuff up. And I remember being told by a coach um, just like, forget about that. Like, even if you're right, what have you done to help everyone else around you achieve success? And that was just this light bulb moment of like, yeah, that, that's right. Like fly, fly your slot, get to your position. And then as you can see someone else struggling, move, move the formation, do what you can to get it to them, to help them succeed. And that was something I've, I just, you know, that was quite, it was well after my military career to kind of have that moment mm. um, to be like, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And that's something I try and do here. I like that. And, and maybe a supplementary question, you know, bringing those 20 people together in the sky. And you've talked about leading business as usual and the normal leadership challenges that exist at Davis. But for someone that might be leading a team in a complex environment, a place that is austere, what advice would you give them to make sure that they can get the best performance from that team? I think one of the, the mantras I like to go by is always lead the group you have. Um, be very reactive with your leadership style. Don't go, if you, you know, came from the military or you came from a political background or you came from a, you know, MBAs or corporate world and you take that to any leadership challenge that's different, it won't work. You, you might have been the most successful military leader in the world and if you go to the corporate sector and try and, be that guy, it won't work. Um, but if you listen and you understand feedback and that's where you're having good platoon sergeants or deputies or you know, ex experts around you who can go, yeah, no, you're not getting that right. We're going to change this. Have you thought about that? And, and having that openness and not take, almost not taking it personally, but even though it might be a personal attack, seeing your, your leadership um, persona and your leadership skills is something that aren't necessarily personal. Mm. So that if someone's critiquing, oh, Dave, the way you're doing that, or you know, what you've done here wasn't right, you go, oh, okay, all right, well, I can, uh, I can change that, I can work with that, and you then it, it can be a slippery slope to then just constantly chasing your tail and you know not getting it right all the time, and then trying to you know work to everyone's needs and keep everyone happy. Uh, you do have to have your lines, but having that reactivity to the crowd and understanding what it requires is I think the most fundamentally you know, key element of getting it right uh, in Antarctic leadership. Yeah, that's very cool. And, um, you know, we deal with a number of clients where individually they may be excellent leaders, but their, their team, you know, isn't up to a standard or whatever, and, and they're unable to, to sort of adapt to get that leadership outcome. And I like what you just said about thinking of leadership as something that's independent to your identity. It, it's, it's something that you've got to be able to adapt and morph to the environment. It's really interesting. Now, we've already talked that Australian Antarctic Division is recruiting. What sort of people should apply? What are the attributes and the traits that you're looking for, regardless of whether you're a plumber or a sparky or a cook or a scientist? Uh, fundamentally, a sense of adventure. Uh, the whole the, the experience of coming down to Antarctica and getting to live and work amongst the wildlife and the last real true wilderness is something that you need to, to in, like, enjoy getting out and outside of your comfort zone and, and attracted to that, as well as being you know a hard worker. Um, they're, they're, they can be pretty long days and, and it can be tough work and it's quite demanding to get it done. And, and down here, more than anything, that you know, if you don't, get it done uh, the the power might go out or the, the you know the science doesn't get done and there's some real tangible outcomes to to what you have to achieve and why you have to keep going to work day in day out um and getting it done so i think anyone that is looking for a, for a challenge um and has a a, a sense of community if you're not just oh, i don't just want a job where i just you know you know, punch my ticket, get my get paid and, and go home and yeah i don't mind fixing, fixing widgets but i you know that's enough for me. You know, you, you, we really want people that have got a sense of, of pride and ownership of the stations and the program. And then you know, after work, you're like, oh, what's everyone else doing? What are we doing tonight? Let's, uh, let, 
put this together or what do we do this weekend? Let's put a field trip together and we'll get out, we'll find some penguins, we'll go hike up some hills and that's what, um, that's what we want. And, and if you've got that attitude and you, you can, you, you know, you go to jobs.antarctica.gov.au and get your application in uh, and we can marry those two up, then you, you'll have the absolute uh, time of your life down here. So, Dave, you, you've spoken about some of the amazing and absolutely unique experiences that, that you can get um, within uh, a, a role in the, the AAD. But clearly, um, there's, there's stuff you don't have. What, what do you miss? Mm. I, I miss the anonymity of being a nobody. Um, <laughs> as, much as, I, as much as I miss my nieces and my friends and family and you know, all those things the back beach. home and smashed avocado on toast, the beach, the sun and the warmth and sand and you know, all those sorts of things, I, after 451 days as the station leader um, and the boss, it's, it gets old mm. and I very much miss being a nobody. I can't wait to just not, yeah, not be kind of known. All right. Well, a linked question. So you're going to do 500 days on the ice, so 500 days of experience. What lessons have you learned in those 500 days that you will bring back to the mainland and perhaps carry on to your next big thing? I think 100%. So it's 500 days away from Australia. I think days on the ice, it'll be like 470-something. I'm not sure who's counting. But um, <laughs> the, the one... The, the one the, yeah, count, count up, not down is the important thing that I like to take away from this as well. Rather, because it, yeah, back, in, back in June, July, the countdown was pretty grim. So you go, let's count up. Um, I, I will bring back that no matter what you keep going forward, you find the positive or you find a learning outcome in what went wrong and you move forward and that you're more and not just as a leader, but as a follower, as in any walk of life. And I think a lot of people back home who were never at any risk of learning this lesson in their day-to-day lives got a very, very quick reminder of life in 2020 that life does not go to plan mm. and when it wants to it will change your plan and all you can do is get up every day and try and move forward towards your goals or do what's best for you your family your friends or your situation so that tomorrow either you're in a better position or the next person that takes over from you is in a better position than where you were and i've learned that lesson a lot of days and months and weeks down here and you just keep going and it it you know, you've, you guys have been there and a number of your listeners, I know are all ex-military and emergency services and, and all walks of life now as well, um, have had a very tough 2020. And the thing is, we're now, you know, it's 2021, we got through it. 2021's looking like it's going to be a roller coaster <laughs> as well. So. Mm. so my final question, what are the first, second and third things that you will do when you do get back home? Oh, well, obviously you got to... I have to say, I'll go, go see mum and my nieces and, and everything as well. And I did promise my nieces I'd bring back a penguin. Um, <laughs> uh, Australian customs and quarantine. And a few, tr- a few international treaties might preclude me from that. But I'll go and see them and just to see how much they've grown. I don't have kids of my own, but to see how much they've grown via uh, video chat and everything as well, spectacular. And they're certainly a lot more talkative than they, they were when, when I uh, left. So really looking forward to just seeing them. I think then one of the second or third things I'll do will will go be go for just a really long walk by myself without, you know, if you go for a walk here, you can, it's great, but you've got to take about 15 kilos worth of, you know, survival gear and a bivy bag and sleeping bag and jackets and water and ice axe and crampons and all sorts of things. So that if anything goes wrong, you get stuck, you've got some gear, but I just want to walk out with my keys, leave my phone miles away and just, just, walk off into the sunset or go for a run around the lake or something as well. I don't know my fitness will be for that, but um, something like that to just breathe some fresh air, see some green and enjoy the freedom of, of being home um, with a mask or whatever it is that I have to do. <laughs> now as well. Dave, that's Sounds fantastic. And, and look, we, we, we wish you all the best for the, the remainder of your trip. I like that idea of counting up, not down, but, but hopefully uh, there's no further delays and you, you get to, to do exactly that, have your long walk sometime around Easter next year, uh, Easter this year. And please say hello to my favourite animal on the world, in the world, the leopard seal. 
I love a good wet leopard seal. Oh yeah, okay, no, good one. <laughs> oh, hopefully, hopefully we'll see some of them on the on the the voyage home. We don't get too many of them on station, but they ah. live out on the sea ice and eat the penguins. Yeah, don't get too <laughs> but, close. Uh, to no, them. thanks. Yeah, thanks, thanks so much for having me on. And shout out to my brother-in-law Luke, who um, put me up to this and, and suggested this to you guys. So thanks for following up. I feel honoured to have been on the on the podcast, and all the best for 2021 for yourselves and keep up the good work. Yeah, and thanks, thanks to you, and also thanks to AAD who um, very kindly um, made this happen as well. Cool. Thank you, Connie. See you later.
Who's prepared? Nice work. Back up angry ants now. That's really bad. That's really well over there. Just while the Navy van sets up. Now to the debrief. We try to go always a little further in this podcast and greatly appreciate your input. Please let us know your feedback, the good, the bad, or the ugly. Also, if you know someone who is living a life less ordinary, we'd love to hear about them. You can get in touch at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Until next episode, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of distance run. See you next time on The Unforgiving 60.